Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Caroline Sita, a film and TV critic and old Hollywood enthusiast. And I'm Ned Baker, and you know something? I read too many comic books. Ned, you uh, ever been in a chicky run? Oh yeah, only thing I do. <laughs> were you a um were you a rebellious kid in high school? No. <laughs> yeah, me neither. I I feel <laughs> Just like two I was goody what, two shoes on a I podcast. feel like I was what in the nineteen fifties they would have called a square. Oh yeah, I was pretty square. I will tell you, I, I did have in high school I had a streak, you know, and it was based on incredibly dorky things like very dorky things like West Side Story and semi-dorky things like The Warriors. Have you ever seen mm-hmm. The Warriors? No. Well, there are movies about gangs, and it is definitely a sort of a classic style. Nothing to do with, like, when we talk about the world of gangs today. It was this idea of, like, a bunch of guys in matching outfits sort of, like, walk in the streets with a lot of, like, power. And me, yeah, a musical all, theater gang. A musical theater gang. Warriors is a great movie where there's, like, it's, like, the city's full of gangs and everybody has, like, their own sort of thing. And there's, like, a, there's like a gang of mimes and, like, a disco gang and all that stuff. So um, it was really, like, I like to walk around my neighborhood with my friends. Like, it was our turf. And yes. um, that's the closest thing I had to a rebellious streak. I guess I like to, you know, like, maybe, like, climb go up the parking garage where we weren't supposed to go that kind of thing but i didn't actually want to like stand up to any adults (laughs) or other kids no 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 that wasn't my style you wanted to be in a theatrical troupe that also wandered the streets exactly exactly yeah and and you you were also sort of a square you feel yes one time i got in trouble with the cops for hanging out at a playground after after hours that was as close as i came to my Mm -hmm. brush with a a dangerous face yeah i actually did that a lot i would hang out at playgrounds after hours so yeah those, <laughs> so that's... we were both rebels without a cause i think you could say that really rebels in the early thousands you and i were exhibiting behavior that in the 1930s might have been seen as actually rebellious but at that point was pretty tame Well, the way this podcast normally works is that Annette and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love, but we are switching things up this week. Not only are we jumping back in time to, as mentioned, the sort of classic Hollywood era, we are also looking at an actor whose entire filmography consists of just three films, and that is Mr. James Dean, a true instant Hollywood icon. He died when he was just 24 years old. It'll actually be the... 66th anniversary of his death this month oh wow uh which we didn't quite plan but that worked out that way Hmm. uh and i would say that james dean is probably best remembered for the film we're going to discuss today that a film that maybe does not exactly represent ned and my youth but we could talk (laughs) about it uh it is the 1955 teen melodrama rebel without a cause Ned, in in part of my being a square phase of high school, it did involve like purchasing books about James Dean and having a real face of getting very into him as an actor, as a persona, very much tied to this movie in particular. But what is your like relationship to James Dean? I wouldn't say that I'm that I strongly had one. I hadn't seen a James Dean film until this year, actually. I think that the film we're watching today, Rebel Without a Cause, I saw for the first time 
about six months ago. I just wanted really? to. Uh, yeah, that's that, right. Not weird that you hadn't seen it. Weird that you happened to have seen it so close to when we were doing a series about it. I just wanted to cross it off my list. Yeah, we had not at the time planned to do this to do this series. It just was a film that had always been out there. I'd never seen it. I was curious about it, and I wanted to put it on. And prior to that, I hadn't really seen him. I actually, it's funny, here she comes up again. My friend Franny Shepard Bates, who got me into American Psycho, I remember her talking a lot about James Dean when Heath Ledger died, because mm-hmm. it kind of brought this idea of the sort of like flaring out too young, tragic death of this like powerful, charismatic young method actor. There was just this sort of tragic symmetry there, and it kind of brought him, I feel, back into conversation a little bit but um i couldn't say that i have much of a strong relationship with him Mm -hmm. but you must have so this is like one thing that fascinates me about james dean is Mm -hmm. i think pretty much everyone has an image of james dean regardless of whether or not you've seen his movies like i think he's he's one of like it's like him elvis and marilyn monroe that it's sort of just like everyone of every generation knows Mm mm-hmm and I was thinking about this in particular. There's the Taylor Swift song where she's, you know, like you've got that James Dean look in your eye or something. And I'm like, how wild that this guy that lived for 24 years, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, you can just drop his name into a song that people of literally any generation, including present day teenagers, just immediately know what you mean by that. Yes, that wouldn't be like an esoteric reference at all, even though probably a lot of people... It might be might be hard pressed to say what what is a James Dean look? What was his sort of personality? Do you feel like that? Well, this is a question. Do you feel like you had before you had seen his movies? Do you feel like you had like an image of what it meant to be like James Dean or what it meant to be like a James Dean character? I think I had assumed that Rebel Without a Cause was about more of a hard edged, mm-hmm. rebellious, dangerous guy. It is, interestingly, I would say about a very sensitive guy, and that is a little bit of a surprise to me. I kind of assumed it was about, like, uh, you know, one of the outsiders. I guess the outsiders have their sensitive, but someone who was, like... Like a Danny Zuko from Greece. (laughs) (laughs) We are square, aren't we? Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, I assumed... the, The baddest boy around, Danny Zuko? I guess I assumed he was kind of like some of some of Marlon Brando's characters. Like, Mm -hmm. I assumed he was a Stanley Kowalski type. It's not really the case. I actually really agree with that. With Rebel Without a Cause in particular, the first time I saw it, I was similarly kind of blown away that he, that Jim Stark, the character he plays, is much less of a, he's not like the greaser that's going around beating people up. Those are his enemies in the movie. Mm -hmm. And even though he is sort of rebellious in a way, it is with a, it's with so much more sensitivity and thoughtfulness and morality Yes, his rebellion is really is really one of just wanting the world to make more emotional sense and be mm-hmm. more compassionate and more in touch. I wouldn't say, I mean, frankly, the title actually feels to me a little bit like a kind of like a sensationalist holdover. Like, I don't know that that is actually a great title for this movie. It's hard mm-hmm. to even like process thought that thought because like, that's the title. That's the Hollywood icon. That is this movie. But if you think about it, like, is this about a rebel without a cause? Would you say that's no. the plot? No. And I think you're right about the t- So the, the movie, I think that they, they kind of like had the title before they had the movie. I think they uh-huh. pulled the title from like a psychiatrist book that's looking at rebellious or dangerous youth. 
And I think, you know, Warner Brothers in that old Hollywood way was like, that's the title for you. <laughs> like, yeah. And I feel like they spent years just being like, someone write a script for this title. And then they landed on this script, which I agree does not the the box is not selling what's inside exactly yeah but maybe that's like what makes it so good too buzz is a rebel without a cause the character of buzz mm-hmm. uh, you gotta do something that's a guy yeah. who's just rebelling and he has no cause except that you have to answer the call of the void yeah but but i feel like that kind of thing probably happened relatively frequently you know it would just be uh you just get a title like angels with 30 faces and then mm-hmm. i don't know if that's a real thing right to it yeah you said it so confidently that i believed you well this is also so i guess there are sort of multiple images of james dean because i think the one that i was really drawn to and the maybe the one that is like a layer deeper than the rebel without a cause poster is Mm -hmm. really this like sensitive moody artist like you look at these photos of him from when he was hanging out in new york and, you know, he's got, like, glasses and a trench coat, and he's kind of seeming cheeky. And very much that, like, bohemian beat generation, I don't know, sort of the face of that in a way, mm-hmm. or at least one aspect of that. Sure. Like, his fav- his favorite um, book was The Little Prince, which I know you're very familiar with. <gasps> and oh, people were wow. always like, this story kind of represents, like, he, like, James Dean is The Little Prince. Like, this is oh, his my gosh. inner almost like Peter Pan style sadness that he has. Wow, that does that does put a really sort of beautiful arrested development in the in the you know like mm-hmm. like stunted growth melancholy on it. The little prince. Yes. Definitely a lot of melancholy. And I think you're right that the characters he played were maybe a little bit more known as teen rebels. Mm-hmm. And he himself was maybe a little more of a bohemian wistful artist Mm -hmm. i do kind of want to give you know we haven't been giving like the most in-depth backstories on these podcasts yet but i feel like with james dean there you know we want to we want to paint a a full portrait of the man the myth the legend yeah let's do it i mean he he lived and he lived his whole life which isn't true of well no he didn't live his whole life but i mean the the book is kind of closed there and it was a long time ago. What's uh so let's get some let's get some biography. Covered all. So he was born February 8th, 1931, which actually means if he had lived he could have been 90 this year. Like there's a world where he could still be alive to this wow. day. He's younger than my grandma. Yeah. yeah. So that's crazy to think about cuz obviously he's so frozen in amber because he died so young, but he's born in Indiana. He was an only child. Uh, He moved with his parents to Santa Monica, California, and he was really close to his mom. And then she very sadly died of cancer when he was nine. And so he then is sent back to Fairmont, Indiana, where his aunt and uncle live. And they sort of become his functionally his parents and guardians. So he lives with them. And he was popular in high school. He was good at sports. There's these very charming photos of him where, like on the basketball team and on the track team and wearing these very nerdy glasses. I'm going to try to find some and post them on our Twitter feed because I was very charmed by them. Uh, but he starts doing like drama and speech in high school and graduates in 1949, then goes back to Santa Monica where his dad, I think his dad has since remarried. So it's kind of back around them. And briefly goes to Santa Monica College to study law, to be pre-law, but then pretty immediately decides to transfer to UCLA to study drama instead, which I think sort of estranges estranges him from his dad. Like his Mm. dad didn't want him to do that path. Um, Although then he ends up 
uh, James Dean ends up dropping out of UCLA after a semester to actually just start working in films and commercials. A lot of this, I will say, I got from this fascinating 1957 documentary that is an early project of Robert Altman's. It's just called The James Dean Story. It was put out by Warner Brothers, which is the studio that James Dean was under contract with. And so it's coming out literally two years after his death. Almost contemporary. Wow. And it is, I will I will recommend to you, I will recommend to our listeners, it's up, somebody uploaded it for free on YouTube. It's only huh. like an hour or 20 minutes, maybe. It is fascinating as a piece of like real life myth making, like the way, mm. I really like never seen a quote unquote documentary like it, but it has, half of it is narrated with like, the drama and intonation of Rod Serling's intros on the Twilight Zone. Hmm. You know, and it'll be like, the young young Jimmy went to the beach and he looked out and he saw the raging power of the water and he thought, that is my acting spirit that I must channel. And he looked up at the gulls and said, I'll fly like those gulls. And I'm like, <laughs> they're just, re- like, that's just fan fiction of what, you know, yes. <laughs> James Dean might have thought as a day on the beach. And then the other half of the documentary is interviews with like, James Dean's his aunt and uncle, his uh, little cousin, people that knew him uh, in New York and in LA, and they are done in a style. <laughs> and I know you hate the style of those seventy-three question Vogue <laughs> videos. <laughs> so, the, like the documentary camera will go like walk through an entryway, and James Dean's uncle is coming down the stairs, and they'll be like, "What was Jimmy like as a child?" And then the guy will answer, and then he'll like kind of walk into another room and be like. You know, like, oh, would you like me to show you some photos? And then they'll walk together into another room. It is so bizarre. I find it irritating these days, but I think through the lens of 1957, I might find it quaint. There is a definite element of just like charm and fascination to this entire project. The James Dean story is what it's called. But there were a couple very charming stories from this, including the interview. One guy who was, I think he worked at like a local garage and and James Dean was always very into motorcycles and cars. So he would hang out there. And this guy tells a story about, you know, little James Dean coming in and the guy, the garage had a PA system. He was kind of like, hey, can I like play with your PA system? And he said, yeah. And so James Dean like gets on the PA system and starts narrating like a fake car race. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? He's like, you know, and here number six is coming up from behind and da 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 da. And everybody just like talks about this like creativity he had and mm-hmm. and loving to make these, you know, fantasy worlds. And this documentary is also then framing all of that within the prism of, you know, he lost his mother young and this is his central wound and could he ever love again? It is like fascinating how much this documentary is fully selling like a spin, putting a spin yeah. on, you know. A really speculative thing. But, you know, you can just sort of say these things authoritatively and it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. And I will say in doing research for this, because like, I, you know, obviously some people, I, I spent like two days looking at articles on the internet. Some people dedicate their entire lives to being James Dean biographers. But certainly, I do think that there is, it's difficult sometimes to get true stories about things because there is so much of that myth making and mythologizing that's happening. And so you're, you'll mm-hmm. read these interviews with someone that's like, I, you know, he was the love of my life. And it's hard to say, like, is that true? Is that something that they rewrote in their mind after the fact? Because it's such a romantic story to have said, you know, that you loved mm-hmm. and lost him or whatever. You know, and evidence by this documentary coming out two years after he died and being spun as this narrative piece of again almost like fan fiction yeah about his inner struggles yeah he's like such a fascinating figure anyway 
back to the actual biography. <laughs> he um so he drops out of UCLA, starts working sort of as an extra. He has a, he has some credits where you know he'll pop up as like man and bar in in certain movies and stuff like that. Then moves to New York City in 1951. And he's kind of doing two things simultaneously. One is he starts actually doing Broadway and theater. And the mm-hmm. other thing is he actually has a, a pretty large filmography of TV. They're sort of like TV movies. I think it was sort of a prestigious TV drama, but it's not like he was the main character in a TV show. You know, they're like anthology series or little movies. I'm hoping to kind of check some of these out as we go along on this hmm. series. I haven't seen any yet, but he, including he did one with um Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Future oh. President Ronald Reagan. Wow. Back when he was just an actor. Yeah. They did one together. Um, and the other big thing that happens here for James Dean is that he starts getting involved with the Actors Theater, which I'm sure will be a major running theme in our podcast, but is essentially the place where the American form of method acting is formed. Mm-hmm. And James Dean is very eager to get involved there. He's accepted. He's one of the youngest people accepted. There's all these very sweet letters he writes home, you know, saying how excited he is to be there. So that's his, uh, I guess, sort of a turning point for him in terms of really going all in on the method acting. Marlon Brando is the other big name that's associated with that movement, who is a couple, maybe like five or six years older than James Dean. So I think yeah. it was definitely a case of James Dean, like looking up to some of these actors that were starting to sort of pioneer yeah the other biggest name now uh, that still is around today but i feel like at the time it was this like you know talk about mythic it was this sort of uh legendary monumental like pulse of the changing current of acting in american film and theater i mean the yeah the sort of like aura of legend that surrounds the actor's theater in the 50s to a point where you know i admit i actually probably am sort of shy on the details, but I have just this impression of in go all these young or, you know, in go all these actors, uh, possibly of varying ages, and then out come the force that will sort of dominate film and TV and theater for like decades to come. Mm -hmm. Yes. And out of it as well comes a lot of maybe mercurial behavior. (laughs) It seemed to me like the, the stories of James Dean his personality seemed like it could be very like tempestuous Hmm. um like to be honest like a little bit of a punk at times it's also interesting to read you know you read about this or even in that documentary the altman documentary there is this they sell it as you know his innate his innate mercurial spirit but i'm also like well is this just what it is to be 21 like is everyone just a little (laughs) bit of a punk when you're 21 and because he didn't have a chance to really grow out of it we've we've sort of assigned that as his full personality i had a bit of a mercurial spirit myself (laughs) when i was in college uh but one such example of this is that he one of his early breakthroughs was in this broadway show called the immoralist that happened in 1954 yeah good title it is a show that's about my understanding is that it's about a, a gay man who marries a woman is like they are unable to consummate their relationship they go to somewhere in North Africa and then the character that James Dean played was like an Arab houseboy who maybe is like trying to seduce them both or I'm not fully clear on the plot but there was sort of a sexual and like particularly like homosexual angle to it Hmm. and James Dean like it's rave reviews in this role yeah but he seems to 
maybe not get along well with a lot of the people in the play. And literally opening night, he gives two weeks notice and then leaves the play after that. Whoa. So that is maybe an example of that. Mercurial. Mercurial. Or or (laughs) just being a punk. Being a little bit of a punk. I don't know. Maybe somebody was shitty to him. Who knows? But uh, yeah. This is the thing too. With all of these little stories I'm finding, you know, some will say he was in the wrong. Some will say this other person was in the wrong. Some will say he got offered, you know, a better deal. Mm -hmm. It it seems to be hard to pin down the exact timeline, a lot of, of these things. But almost immediately after doing The Immoralist, he ends up leaving for Hollywood because he's cast in Elia Kazan's uh, East of Eden as Cal. This is his debut film role. Uh, Kazan is a founding member of the actor studio, so he kind of knows of Dean through that. He saw him in The Immoralist. But this brings Dean out to Hollywood where he signs a contract with Warner Brothers. And then really, you know, he only does the three movies, East of Eden's first, then Rebel Without a Cause, then Giant. They all happen within a couple years span. And he only lived to see uh, East of Eden come out. He died in 1955, which is the year that East of Eden and Rebel Without a Cause were released. Giant came out the next year. Uh, So it is kind of remarkable what a short amount of time he was working and then how much of an impact he still has Mm -hmm. on our culture. Uh, He was posthumously nominated for Oscars for East of Eden and for Giant, which was the first time that anybody had ever been posthumously nominated for an Oscar. Hmm. Um, And then in particular, Rebel Without a Cause was literally released almost to the day one month after he died. He died in a car accident. One of his hobbies was race driving, race car driving. And he was actually on his way to a race, but was just driving on the highway. Somebody sort of made a left turn in front of him and he wasn't able to stop in time. And he dies in that car accident. And that's obviously a huge deal across the country that this, you know, major rising star has died. And so, uh, yeah, a month after that happens, people are in theater seeing Rebel Without a Cause, which has a, you know, a major plot line about a dangerous car race and and somebody dying in a car accident. Like, it's really crazy, frankly, the, like, the timeline of all this and the, what it must have felt like to be seeing it. For the first time, you know, he mentioned Heath Ledger. I think we probably all f- people that were alive for that felt that way with The Dark Knight coming out. But there was a little bit more time in between. It wasn't literally the next month. Yeah. And and at this point, we had sort of something of a frame of reference for this. You know, we had. Yeah. We were in a post James Dean world. We were also post like, I don't know. It just feels like the 60s, 70s. There was just, you know, the whole the 27 club. We had this a lot more frames of reference for like the sudden meteoric rise and then sudden tragic death of all these young celebrities mm-hmm. something we are a little bit more familiar with and james dean feels like that's happening right there at the beginning where i feel like probably there are prior examples of that that i'm not as familiar with but i can also see them being sort of like covered up a little bit more earlier mm-hmm. on but well and how much the fact that we know of this one speaks to it be unique too that this has stuck around so much mm-hmm. yeah you know like we keep saying that taylor swift can yeah. And reference him in a song and we all have an image of that. But as you say, like the circumstances are all there for the myth making. You know, the mm-hmm. you can see why this captures the sort of consciousness of the American people in such mm-hmm. a such a powerful way. Yes. And I think I'm always kind of interested with the stuff of acknowledging the role that that myth making maybe played on American culture or American history, but also keeping in mind that like he was a real person. And I'm sure none of these sort of stories that are spun are fully accurate. You know, he was like a 
22, 23-year-old artist guy. Like, in some ways, I feel like, you know, we went to theater school. Like, we kind of knew moody, <laughs> artistic people that we hung out with that have- We knew quite a few. You know, that have matured in various ways and, and you know, had their flaws and had their strengths. And I, you know, I find that there is something, at least for me as a person who feels like I know a decent number of, like, artsy theater people, like, there's something about James Dean that feels kind of familiar to me and- mm-hmm you know, human in a way that's that's beyond the, the myth itself. Yeah. But he is left behind these three films that are all in their own way iconic, although I think Rebel Without a Cause is by far the most iconic of them all. Mm-hmm. Certainly the role that I think he's most associated with. I think him in that, you know, red jacket and white t-shirt. It's where the is, images come from. Yeah. Definitely. Although the image of him sitting in a in a car in a carriage in giant that's another one that i have like very Mm. vividly in my head but i don't know anything about giant and i I don't know the plot at all nor do i really know about east of eden well we'll be finding out soon well this is the other thing about james dean so i've seen rebel without a cause a bunch i've seen east of eden once and i actually haven't seen giant either it's very funny to me that i had a quote-unquote obsessive high school phase in which i somehow didn't even feel <laughs> obligated to see all three of these movies it wasn't the same as your christian bale phase which yeah, had it seems quite. a completionist streak to it and yet even so it feels like you can be obsessed with james dean in a way that's beyond just being obsessed with his work like you mm-hmm. can be obsessed with his persona yeah in a way and the persona obviously is so tied to these movies so as you said you've now seen rebel without a cause twice in the same year a couple mm-hmm. months apart so what was your what was your first viewing like what was your most recent viewing like uh they were both great and i was not bored at all the second time i was like okay i guess i'll like rewatch it so it's fresh in my mind but i i i was just totally captivated by it both times yeah i think it's a very interesting compelling weird beautiful film yeah i really i really enjoy it and and i will say the first time i saw it it was one of these things where like i couldn't stop thinking about it i i just wanted anyone you know all week i kept being like have you ever seen rebel without a cause Mm -hmm. you know to people i just wanted to talk about it because i think that it interestingly like i didn't know quite what to make of it and we've we've gone through movies like that a couple times in this podcast you know, Green Knight being the strongest, like, what even, what, mm-hmm. what am I supposed to take away? But this has some of that. It isn't, there are certain movies from this era, you know, speaking of Brando, On the Waterfront is a movie I remember mm-hmm. enjoying. But I think, you know, you kind of get that. It's like, he has to stand up. He could have been somebody. He could have been could've somebody. Been He's got this brother thing. He's got to learn to stand up to Lee J. Cobb. And then he does, and then everybody does. And so I feel like it's a little easier to unbox. And this one is a little bit more of a puzzle, although it definitely has, there are elements that are familiar to me. As I, I've mentioned The Outsiders earlier, I'm a, I'm a big fan of The Outsiders, and I do feel like there are some parallels to that. It reminds me of West Side Story. It reminds me of Romeo and Juliet. Do you know what it was really reminding me of? And not to be a film bro that can only relate things to superhero movies. But <laughs> I would be very curious to know if Sam Raimi considers this an influence on the early Spider his Spider-Man movies. Ooh. There was something about it, particularly the Natalie Wood performance as this sort of internally tortured but outwardly confident girl that felt so much like what Kirsten Dunst is doing as Mary Jane Watson in the Spider-Man movies. And the sort wow. of heightened melodrama of it all and the colors 
I mean, uh, Sam I know, Raimi but... as a filmmaker does feel like he is really in conversation with previous generations of film. So mm-hmm. I would not be surprised at all. You know, and like, what's uh, what's the instigating? What instigates Peter getting involved with the uh, you know wrestling, which is so ends up being like part of his faithful life journey. He sees Mary Jane getting in a cool car with mm-hmm. Flash Thompson. Is like, That's I need to I'm get saying. a car. Wow, yeah, I think you might be onto something. It is a movie that is, I think, influential whether or not you have seen it. I think that (laughs) people, this movie conjures up feelings and emotions. And I had forgotten about this scene in La La Land where Emma Stone's character, who's an actress, comes in and she's telling Ryan Gosling, like, oh, I got this part for this show. And I had said it was done before, but actually it's really cool. It's like Rebel Without a Cause. And he quotes Rebel Without a Cause. And then immediately, based on her reaction, he's like, oh, you've never actually seen it, have you? And she's like, no, I haven't. And so they go to see it. Hmm. I only remembered this scene because I was looking at the Letterboxd reviews for Rebel Without a Cause, and I was very charmed by how many people watched this movie for the first time because they went to see it in La La Land. Oh, I like, wow. I love that. I love that La La Land existing like inspired people to check out the movies that it you know directly or indirectly referenced. But I think Rebel Without a Cause is just, it is a thing that like it, it makes sense to me that Emma Stone's character was just like... Oh, it's like that. Whether yeah. or not she had actually seen it, it feels evocative somehow. Although you could quote that and I go, uh-huh. And there'd be a pause <laughs> and you'd say, you've never seen La La Land, have you? And no, I haven't. Uh-oh. Well, I explained the relevance of that scene, so it's fine. Yes. I feel like um, I know what I need to know. Yeah, you know what you need to know. I was actually wanting to rewatch it, having watched that clip. So that come over sometime. We'll watch La La Land together. Sure, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> so how about you? You've seen this film I guess this film was your James Dean phase. Yes, it really was. I really love this movie. I watched, I saw it in high school. And you did as a high schooler as well. Love it. Yes, yes. I loved it right away. I, I think I mentioned this on one of our earlier podcasts, but I really grew up, we were a big like TCM family mm-hmm. household. So I really grew up watching a lot of movies from the 40s and 50s. Yeah. So that I think that this style of movie, this is a very heightened melodrama. I mean, I think even by 1950s standards, like even the contemporary contemporary reviews were a little bit like, okay, this is a little much for us. (laughs) They thought it was what, sensationalist with its depiction of like the car races and- I just think a pretty- even they were sort of like, is this too melodramatic? Is mm. the is the operatic nature of it working against, you know, what it's trying to do? And honestly, if somebody told me that this they just didn't jive with this movie, I would get it. Like, it is very tied to an era and a style that is not, you know, so familiar to us anymore. As much as method acting sort of became the, you know, the grounded, realistic, naturalistic standard for acting – so much about Rebel Without a Cause is completely unrealistic and so heightened and the music and the camera work and the score. So I could I could totally get this movie feeling off-putting for mm-hmm. people. I think as a person who was very steeped in this era growing up, it was it was easy for me to to on jive with it tonally. Mm-hmm. What did you say? I said it was on pudding. Please ignore me. <laughs> This was the most on-putting movie I'd ever seen. But I think, like you said, the big surprise and standout for me was that this is not a movie about a violent greaser, you know, learning to reform or something. It is basically about a fundamentally decent teenage boy trying his best in a difficult environment. 
And yes. that surprise aspect of it and the warmth of the James Dean performance, I found so captivating. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I enjoy about it every time I rewatch it. One uh, in college, I'd forgotten about this, but I was digging through my files in preparation for this. I wrote an 18 page research paper about juvenile delinquent films in the 1950s oh. centered on this, The Wild One with Marlon Brando and Blackboard Jungle, which has a young Sidney Poitier. Oh. Uh, so I have a, I really, a lot of my college career, when I took history classes, I was like, how can I stealthily just write about something that interests me that is, you know, tied to history? Oh, this wasn't not. for a film class. No, this was just straight up for an American history class. I've done this with musicals before. I'm like, these <laughs> things are historical. I will just find a way to write about entertainment in classes that are not fully centered on that. <laughs> so yes, I have, I have technically done an academic study of Rebel Without a Cause, although I don't know how much value that will bring to this. But I think I hopefully for this James Dean series, I do want to acknowledge that like, I hope we encourage people to check out these movies if they haven't seen them before. But also, if you haven't seen them before, hopefully we'll talk about them in a way that's still interesting to listen along. So maybe if we want to like, sort of go through the plot a little bit here, as yeah, we're, sure. you know, as our discussion, so we can ground people a little bit. Do you want to do you want to start off with how like what's the setup here as we meet our we meet our central trio at a, a police station? Yeah, well, uh it is an interesting setup, particularly for someone who doesn't know exactly what to expect of the movie. Mm -hmm. Because I mean I went into this like really clean. Like the first thing you see, the very first thing you see as this, as you say, very dramatic music swells, is a seemingly drunk man in a suit whose age I wasn't sure what I was supposed to make mm -hmm. of it, but he is a high schooler, but um Finding a little, you know, symbol monkey toy mm -hmm. on the monkey. street with very basically fan of the opera. Yeah, very fan of the opera. Basically, like amidst a pile of trash, and he kind of lies down on his stomach and plays with it a little bit, and then sort of tenderly tucks it in with a piece of newspaper that's blowing mm -hmm. by, and then kind of curls up himself, doing that thing I do when I'm sleeping without a blanket, and kind of wedge my <laughs> hands between my legs and. <laughs> Kind of like uh, dozes off there. So a scene that I believe was, as a lot of this movie was, either improvised or suggested by James Dean. There was, I think there was supposed to originally be a longer prologue that where we saw somebody getting beaten up and they drop that toy, mm -hmm. which they end up cutting. But I think they had been filming that and James Dean was like, hey, just film me doing something on the street with this monkey. And the director, Nicholas Ray, was like, okay. It's <laughs> so really, they filmed that. It's really interesting because... It's hard to immediately say, like, what kind of movie is this setting me up for? I mean, he's very drunk for the first 10 to 15 minutes of the movie, but that is not what the movie's about. Like, he doesn't drink again for the rest of the film. We don't know exactly where he's coming from. He does not have, like, it's not a movie about him wandering the streets alone. Although I guess you could say it's about a movie about three people who were all kind of, who do seem to have been previously alone in their own ways, who find mm -hmm. each other. But... It's not really clear what it's setting you up for, except I feel a movie about a guy who has this powerful drive of tenderness in him mm -hmm. that he doesn't quite know how to express, or maybe he does know how to express, but in a way that the world is not set up to welcome. Because basically then the cops come pick him up for public drunkenness and haul him off to the- For plain drunkenness. They like try to arrest, they're like, is he involved in a fight? And they were like, nope. <laughs> Just plain drunkenness. Plain drunkenness. Uh, so they take him off to the juvenile station house where our three 
central characters are all kind of being booked or I guess not booked are are mm-hmm. being sort of like talked to by various cops and detectives and they don't really yet meet they just kind of all see each other mm-hmm. through the various glass windows yeah once you've actually seen this movie you understand the structure to be we meet three teens that were having a bad night and mm-hmm. then we check in on them the next day and just follow their normal lives but yes. i completely agree that when you're starting this movie for the first time there's very little grounding as to what the plot will be where are we going what the tone will be who the the protagonist will be but it really is like you have jim stark who's james dean's character mm-hmm. which is funny that they go out he's of their way to james. clarify at one point yeah that he's james it's like no wonder this is his most iconic role like it literally is maybe his same name and he was called J- the real james dean was frequently called jimmy like all of his friends and family call him jimmy jimmy dean, jimmy dean not the sausage maker though mm, but you different. have jim mm-hmm. you have judy and you have actually, to complete the little trio, they end up calling him Plato, but his name is John. So we have three little J's. We have Jim, Judy, and John, huh. a.k.a. Plato. Yeah. She has run away from home after some sort of falling out with her father. We're sort of introduced to this tension with she Natalie feels. Wood. Yeah, Natalie Wood, the amazing Natalie Wood. Amazing. Doing so it. good in this movie. Yeah, she really is. Yeah, and she she sure is giving us raw method style acting from scene one. She kind of has her most, it feels like one of her most explosively breakdowny scenes right there in the beginning when she's in this office with a semi-sympathetic detective having run away from home after some sort of episode with her father. An interesting plot that is not central, but I don't know, there's, there's, there's a sort of a tension going on between her and her father that seemingly has to do with her coming of age and maturing into a woman Mm -hmm. and they're not really they're being sort of unsure what their relationship is like i think probably you could read in all sorts of things there but uh so she's come running away from home this is how i feel about this movie in general it is surface level melodrama with the as much depth of subtext as you would like to give it. Like, oh, yeah. I completely you agree with you that you dig. could do very specific readings of really all of the plot lines in this mm-hmm. movie for for as dark as you'd like to take it. I think ba- the basic setup of the Judy story is that she is growing up. She's like a teenager. She's Natalie Wood was 16 when she filmed this. And Whoa. I know, isn't that crazy? And so is Sal Minio when wow. James was 24. So he is, makes sense that he <laughs> does not quite look like no. the other two. But this was this was Natalie Wood's big um, transition from like child star roles to, you know, more adult roles. But the basic setup of Judy's story, it's like each of the three of the trios, they all have parent issues. And her parent yep. issue, as yeah. you say, is that she is like growing into like, you know, the sexuality or just the adult, the body of an adult woman that has... Because of this, her dad has basically shifted their entire relationship and level of affection with her. And you get the sense that she just like doesn't understand. And she's not reading this as, oh, our our relationship's growing and maturing. She's kind of reading this as like, my dad has stopped loving me. And so therefore, I will like act out in a way that, you know, makes him pay attention to me. And and she's she's called in the police station for wandering around and the the cops like okay we'll call your dad which she sort of is like oh no don't do that but kind of clearly wants them to and then he he calls and he's like okay your mom's gonna pick you up at the station and this is a great natalie wood acting moment where she just like loses her mind she's like he said my dad was gonna pick me up like not my mom like i want my dad to come pick me up and it is very raw like the whole thing is very yeah 
wrenching. And this little exchange at the end when the cop says, Judy, take it easy. And she goes, oh, sure. That, I feel, kind of sums up the whole, like, parent, the whole, like, adult teen dynamic that is going to continue to be explored through this, which is adults being like, why don't you kids chill out? Your life is really not so bad. And the kids being like, you don't get it at Mm -hmm. all. And you are not here for me. And it's generally feels like a movie about teenagers who are looking around at the world with this boiling to the tops of their lids exasperation with how the world just like does not understand what they are going through and is not there for them. Mm-hmm. And teenagers who from who from the outside are living very comfortable middle class suburban lives. Yeah. And I think some of the disconnect is their parents being like, you know, we feed you, we clothe you. It's not freaking World War II anymore. Like, what are you, do you have to complain about? And the kids having all of these, in a way, it's sort of like Freaky Friday, <laughs> which we <laughs> talked about in our Jamie Lee Curtis series. But it is sure. kind of a movie where it's like you get where the adults are coming from and they're correct in saying in 10 years you won't care about this stuff. But you also get where the teens are coming from and you're like, the problems they're having are real. And just because they these problems won't seem so important in the future doesn't mean that they aren't important now. Like, I think it is kind of a movie that's sympathetic to both of those points of view. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, I I, I cite um, The Outsiders and I say, you know, specifically Romeo and Juliet, a play that I love. I directed that a few years ago. And for me, it was all about like... Starring uh, Purnell, former guest Purnell. That's right. Right. Former guest Purnell was Romeo. And oh, he was so good. He was was so good. Yeah, it was a great cast. It was a... It was really a show that I was extremely proud of. And for me, what I was connecting with, and I was, you know, 22 or 23 directing that, was like, this is about young people with this tremendous outpouring of passion, like passion and energy and this like heart pounding desire to like love and kill that they just can barely, it's like oozing out their eyeballs and the world has no way for them to do it. And they then just like explode all over each other. And by the end, they figure out like what loving and killing actually means. Mm -hmm. And I love those kind of stories. I just love them. And this definitely is that. It's like they're playing with- It's a definite Romeo and Juliet influence story. Exactly. Not so much when people think Romeo and Juliet influence, they think like people who are in love and the world wants to keep them apart. It's not really that. It's more broadly just like these kids- are looking around at the world with this like sense of oblivion and all this passion and all this energy and they are playing with love and death and they don't know what to do with it and mm-hmm. then they and then you know they get burned along the way. Yeah. And so our third member of this trio that I think complicates the Romeo and Juliet dynamic of it all is Plato, played mm-hmm. by the wonderful Salminio, who's also 16. And his deal is that he's maybe even wealthier than Jim and Judy are, yeah. but his his dad's completely out of the picture, except for sending, you know, his- Child support Sending checks. money along, but yeah. with not even a note, you know? Like, yeah. he can't even be bothered to do that. And his mom, even though it's Easter weekend, his mom is off traveling, and he's he's functionally just being raised by, you know, his housekeeper, yes, who actually so seems very lovely and seems to very deeply care about him. But yes. Plato is a very- like shy, nerdy outcast kid, like a total getting mm. picked on. Poor little you know, rich it, kid for sure. Yeah. Like But but very like does not you don't get the sense that he really has any friends. And so one of the no. big first gestures in this movie is that is that Plato's kind of shivering and Jim in his drunken <laughs> state 
it, like immediately goes to give him his jacket. He's like, oh, you're cold here. Have my his jacket. Uninhibited gregariousness at the police station. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so I think this is like setting even this first scene, which I think is is me is probably the most tight one of the most heightened scenes in the movie. You are getting mm-hmm. this dichotomy of like this is this is the famous scene where Jim yells at his parents like you're tearing me apart, which I feel like is a very iconic um, yeah. James Dean moment. But but you know, so you have one side that's like that, and then you have another side that's this very tender, you know, like oh I'm seeing another kid in trouble, I'm giving him my jacket, and I'm being very sweet to him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the dichotomy that makes Jim Jim Stark the character and James Dean the actor so like fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, so Plato is in for shooting puppies. Which is um, wild. Which is wild. That's a, a wild, wild thing to just introduce. And it, it does come up because Plato ends up kind of snapping, but they do kind of like drop it in and then you forget about it a little bit, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that he clearly has a powerful angst that he doesn't know how to express um, and is clearly, I mean, he gives a really haunted performance. Like you just get this mm-hmm. look, even in his, you know, happiest moments. I mean, he has like one truly joyful scene and other sort of nice ones, but all the way through it, you just get this idea of this kid who is basically seemingly tortured every minute of every day. And I think one of the most obvious lenses that we are going to see that through now is to see Plato as a closeted gay character. Mm-hmm. I mean, closeted in the sense of like you just he he had no option. There was no there was no outlet. There was no option there at all um yeah i don't know this is another thing that's like the subtext is as much as you would like to read into it Mm -hmm. yes it's never explicit i think it would have been is my understanding illegal to make it explicit because of the yeah what is it called the haze code code, yes so they could not have put explicit reference to homosexuality in the film because it would have been seen as you know moral lewdness or something personally i think they go as far as they could to make it explicit like he has a photo of a guy up in his like a handsome guy up in his locker yes like i would go so far as to say this is as much this is as close to the surface as subtext can be at least in my reading and so much of his the movie frames it as you know jim is sort of looking after plato as like a as like a child figure and that plato is looking up to jim as the father he never had but i think it it in a lot of how they're staged and framed and acted, it feels, and maybe it's true that Plato could be like, oh yeah, my affection for him is like, he's my father figure, but you kind of get the sense that there's a deeper longing there that Plato himself may not, may or may not actually be aware of. Yes, it is so strong. I mean, yeah, there are all these little moments of his like leaning into the gravity mm-hmm. of Jim and just like looking up at him with his like, these like wide eyes. As I understand it from the production sort of behind the scenes, like everyone in the film knew what they were doing. It wasn't one of these things where it was like, oh, we accidentally made a we accidentally made a sort of a queer aspect here. Um, I think that they definitely all understood mm-hmm. what was going on. This is one of those situations where I kind of wish I had a time machine to understand what did the world make of this at the time? Mm-hmm. What did people like what was the conversation around this? Did people go see this movie and say, hmm, the boy clearly needs a father, and that's about it? <laughs> like, was that possible? I mean, I think looking at it now, we are so prepped to mm-hmm. perceive subtle queer narratives in things. And as you say, like, this is about as explicit as a technically subtextual aspect could be. I don't really know what people would have made of this, because I I think I, I, I it is hard for me to fully understand the way that like homosexuality existed in the public consciousness mm-hmm. 
in the 50s because I know what the laws were. But, you know, a lot of times looking back, we get this flattening. We don't know how people actually thought about things or talked about things. Yeah. And this actually connects to real world. Um, I think Salminio was definitely openly bisexual by the end of his life. Yeah, mm-hmm. actually, all three stars of this movie had very tragic deaths, which is also a very like strange thing about yeah. watching it. None of them um, lived past 47 or something like that. Yeah. And, but also like really just like Salminio was sad. murdered yeah. on the street and um, Natalie Wood was very famously drowned. Um, but uh, James Dean as well had his sexuality as sort of an open question. Actually, the director of this movie, Nicholas Ray, at some point was like, oh, he was just bisexual. Like everyone kind of stresses out about it, but that's just what it was. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's really not a big deal. I think that probably the way Rebel Without a Cause was perceived was that there were people at the time who watched it the way you and I are watching it. And immediately saw all the subtext and there were probably less of those people than there would be today but i think there's probably also people who would watch this movie today and not necessarily tap into that aspect of it yeah i suppose so hard for me to imagine but i suppose you're right the setup for jim's parents then that's sort of the one parent setup we haven't talked about yet Mm -hmm. is i would say this is the aspect of the movie that is hardest for me to swallow from a modern perspective in terms of how they frame his his parent issues um his dad is uh, the millionaire from Gilligan's Island. Which I will <laughs> never not find deeply distracting that Thurston, Thurston Howell III, III is his dad. I think he's giving a good performance, but oh, fundamentally yeah, that totally. voice is so recognizable. But so Jim's problem. So on the one hand, his parents are just they clearly don't have a happy marriage. They bicker a lot. And this stresses him out. That part, Mm -hmm. I think, is very relatable. Mm -hmm. They then root it more specifically in the idea that his mother is very domineering and controlling. And his dad is very passive and, like, quote, unquote, emasculated. And Mm -hmm. they really lean into this very 1950s idea of masculinity. And at one point, the dad is wearing an apron and sort of making dinner for the mom. And Jim is sort of just like... Disturbed by this. Disturbed. Like, he finds it funny. And then he finds it deeply upsetting. And his whole thing is like... like He's essentially saying, Dad, I want you to be a man so that you can teach me to be a man. Yeah. And I find this element of the movie not good (laughs) from my point of view. But then at the same time, the movie is so much... The movie is so in love with Jim's sensitivity. And at one point, Judy has a monologue where Jim is like, Judy, what do you want in a man? Like, you want somebody that's really a man, right? And she's like, well, yeah, but I want somebody that's really sensitive and caring. Like, that to me is what a man is. It's actually a very modern sounding monologue. Like, Mm -hmm. the values she's saying of masculinity are very contemporary. And Jim's, like, caring attitude towards Plato is so contemporary that I almost have a hard time squaring the movie's sensitive take on masculinity with this more retro feeling fear of emasculation. Like, it's weird to me that they're coexisting in the same movie. Yeah, there is, I say there is an aspect that you can see under there of his wanting his parents basically to be courageous, like to basically to display a sense of integrity mm-hmm. and like stand up for actual beliefs and not be sort of like running away and lying. And that's, that is something that I think still plays relatively well. I also felt that the part of it that is least resonant and in fact like most sort of regressive is this idea that he like wants very traditionalist gender expressions from his parents. And at one point, you know, says like, if only like dad would like snap and knock mom cold, like maybe they'd both feel better. So that is the part of it 
that I'd say has aged very poorly. I think- And yet then somehow Jim himself is not embodying any of these value, those values. And I don't think no. the movie thinks it's a bad thing that he's not. Like he's the one that when kids at school are trying to start a fight with him, he doesn't want to fight back. Exactly, And it yeah. is so weird. Like I, and maybe I can't tell if that tension is in, is intentional or not. Yeah. Like him being like, dad, I want you to be a quote unquote man. But I myself don't really want to be a quote unquote man in the way I'm asking of you. No, it's such a soft movie, you know, and like, and we, yeah. you know, we see the like the hard guys at school, and those, as you say, are kind of like the antagonists. All the Danny Zukos. All the Danny, yeah, whole. <laughs> Although actually, Danny Zukos is, is Danny kind Zucos. of soft too, but whatever the the bad. What is what's the other? He, or do you mean the scorpions that they race yes, with? Yes, yes, the scorpions that they race with. That's yeah, yeah, more yeah, of his, yeah, yeah. His vibe. Can I ask before mm-hmm. we move on? Which I realize we've literally only talked about one scene of this movie, <laughs> but there's not a ton of plot. Once you get to the setup, there's actually not a ton of plot to this movie. Yeah, it's a little bit more just it's vibes. Basically, like a stressed day. <laughs> yeah, very. <laughs> like the stressful most stressful day. day in your teenage life. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you think of, in particular, James Dean's acting in this like police station scene? It's interesting. Uh, definitely. I was able to more process it this second time where, as you say, like, you understand where the movie is going. And so I can say, like, okay, it's not a movie about a guy who, like, wants to live in, like, a drunken stupor. Mm -hmm. It's about this teen who's looking for a sort of a – some sort of guiding principle or just, like, a way to be in the world. So I found his kind of, like, goofiness really fun. Um, That your tearing me apart moment – it's interesting. It's just so interesting because it feels like such a climactic exclamation, and yet it happens like so the near the beginning scene. of the movie. You're so right. If you watch that clip out of context, you'd be like, "Oh, and here's the end of the movie." Exactly. Yeah. But it's how we're introduced to him. Yeah. I think that this opening scene is my least favorite of James Dean's scenes in this movie. I hear that. I think he he as this sort of method actor. Young method actor who I think very specifically wants to be Marlon Brando. Hmm. I think he can lean into escalation in an uninteresting way. He always, he always, you feel like James Dean always wants to go to 10, like immediately. <laughs> <laughs> That's like his impulse. Yeah. I actually think he's such a more interesting actor when he's operating at like a two or a three. His quiet stuff, yeah, does work better. And it's interesting for you to mention Marlon Brando. I mean, I think of... Uh... When is Streetcar Named Desire? Earlier that's than this, right? That's before this. I think okay. that's 47, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, Jim doing the, like, police siren feels like Marlon Brando <laughs> doing the cats in the- uh-huh. Them cats, you know, in the in Streetcar Named Desire. But but in Streetcar Named Desire, it's so much more a guy who, you know, he wants to unsettle. He wants to, mm-hmm. like, he has this kind of, like, chip on his shoulder, and he clearly, like, at least in the case of Blanche, like, he wants to fuck with her. And, yeah, this one is a little bit less- easily reconciled i see what you mean i think it is it's fun to watch in the sense of like it's another it's we have these like precious few little like scraps of acting from this guy so it's interesting Mm -hmm. to see him in this different mode in here although i agree it kind of like fits the the rest of the movie not as well but maybe it's kind of interesting to see to see him in this quieter mode i don't know this is one of those puzzles i'm like how how does him being like almost belligerently i mean he's not truly belligerent well actually yes he is he takes a swing at the cop um Mm -hmm. how does having him be belligerently drunk at the beginning of the movie fit in with 
the rest of it. It almost feels like an experiment, you know, like he's trying something yeah. on for size. Well, it is fascinating. So then the next part of the movie, we just like wake up the next day. It's I don't know if it's the first day of school for everyone. Jim, Jim and his family have just moved into this town, which mm-hmm. is sort of their pattern. It's like whenever things go bad, they just move to a new town and they're like, fresh start. We don't have to think about the past. Yeah. Everything will be fine. And so we have Jim going to school the first day. And all of a sudden, these three teens that we had previously seen at like all of their lowest points it is very fascinating to see the next day just what they're like and maybe that is part of the teen experience Mm -hmm. or the human experience that you can go from being a complete mess to the next day you're like oh okay now i'm acting fine like i i almost feel like a different person Uh and judy we now see with her friends who are called the kids who are the the traditional greaser punk guys yeah and she's so much more confident and flirty and sassy and like very sassy to jim as he's kind of trying to be like and jim meanwhile is like hey i'm the new kid in town he does this freaking adorable thing (laughs) where she's well yeah she's walking by and there's a fence like a really tall fence like above their head between them and he literally jumps like just briefly jumps up and he's like hi 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 (laughs) and then like opens the fence and he's like can i walk with you (laughs) yeah and it's such a turn from how we saw him at the police station. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like I like that scene there. He's he's clearly like I'm gonna put on my best face and give it a go with people, and mm-hmm. it's kind of cool to see him basically be lightly to seriously antagonized through that first day of school, mm-hmm. and for most of it, just be like do this kind of I don't know what I read as a kind of an unembarrassed smile and shrug it off. It's just a mm-hmm. very interesting. There's all these like interesting weird impulses that. That I think make the movie very human because life is full of weird things that don't like fit a rhythmic narrative or something. But he has all Mm -hmm. these like, I think I just might have expected a little more like somebody says something threatening and he like tenses up and is like ready to ready to go. And like we do get to some of that place, but just the weird like the moment when she's like, ah, life is crushing it around me. And he just kind of goes, life (laughs) can be beautiful. Or it's like, yeah, I don't know. Yes. He kind of keeps this weird, he's got like this like wry humor and this sort of wry curiosity in the mm-hmm. way he like looks around at everything and is trying to, I don't he know, really it He really is trying. His first, he, we see him with his parents at breakfast yeah. and as he's leaving, he's like, I think we can actually stay here for a while. Like he has this genuine optimism of like, this one's going to, this time it's going to work out. Yeah. And you feel that throughout the day. He's super sweet to Judy and sort of is like, hey, you want to go to school with me? And she's like, oh, I'm going to hang out with my friends who are all assholes. And mm-hmm. he's just like, okay. <laughs> and then he gets to school and he sees Plato there and they sort of, you know, he's super warm to Plato, even though it's clear Plato's kind of an outsider. They go to uh, a planetarium at Griffith Observatory, which they will return to at the end of the movie. But mm-hmm. he's like the, the, the kids, the gang is like goofing off and he's trying to like join in on their jokes but it just makes them all hate him so much yeah which feels relatable i think and what maybe is less relatable is that the way they manifest their dislike of him is to straight up have a knife fight outside of the planetarium on this school field trip which is a real zero to ten escalation on the part of buzz judy's boyfriend i find this chapter of the movie Mm -hmm. so resonant and cool not in Ooh. a way, not in a way where I see any of my own experience in it, as I have never you been in a knife fight. Fights, uh... No, I've never been in a fight of any kind uh, with just some kid at school. I do, however, I think that it is interesting because, as, you know, you said it just makes them instantly hate him. I feel like 
that relationship, particularly between Jim and Buzz, who kind of is like mm-hmm. the leader of the gang, the sort of head bully, is so much more dynamic than just... I don't think I would say he hates him at all. I think it's almost like they pick him to bully in a way that feels like that feels like it's like intended to haze him into being part of the gang. My mm. my real read on this mm-hmm. is that in a scenario, so to to kind of take us through a little bit the next part of the plot, just to to reference, mm-hmm. they have this knife fight. They sort of antagonize him. They slash his tires. They have a knife fight that ends in a very interesting charged way that isn't just like two people fight and then split. They make a date to do a chicky run later Basically, on. Basically, Jim wins, mm-hmm. essentially wins that fight. And yes. he's like, okay, you can have a chance to win back the honor, but like, let's not do another another knife fight because that was fucking crazy, bro. Yeah. Like, let's do something else. <laughs> not with ease. And they're like, cool, do you want to like play this horrifically dangerous car race game and hilariously he actually agrees to do it before he knows what it is but yes yes, that gets us into the next the next section yes which is you know there's a scene where he talks with his dad but they end up going out to this very sort of electric charge night encounter on the bluff with the cars all the like cool 50s cars rumbling and agree to play this game the chicky run where him and buzz both in stolen cars will drive at full speed towards the cliff and uh we head off towards the bluff First man who jumps is a chicken. So the mm-hmm. idea is that they will both jump. Whoever jumps first is chicken and their cars will go off the end. And they have this- You know, this, like you do. Like you do. Just a classic high school hazing ritual. Yeah. And they have this interestingly sort of intimate, like almost like falteringly intimate conversation looking mm-hmm. over the edge of the cliff before they agree to do it. And in the end, sort of unintentionally, uh, Buzz gets part of the sleeve of his leather jacket don't wear leather jackets with extraneous buckles, kids, if you're going to do a chicky run, which you shouldn't do. Gets kind of caught on the door, and he's unable to escape the car and kind of drives over the edge and mm-hmm. dies explosively. Yeah. My read- A very horrific- Yeah. Like, just a really horrific, tragic accident that, again, if you're an audience in 1955 and James Dean has died in a car accident a month before this, like, that's a thing that I can't yeah. imagine how audiences are yeah. processing this whole sequence. Absolutely charged. But I kind of get the impression that, like, if this thing had not ended in tragedy, like, mm-hmm. Jim would have been in the gang at that point. That this was kind of like an initiation. I mean, one of the last sort of conversations that goes on between Jim and Buzz is, and I, I love Buzz's performance. I, I, I don't even remember what that actor's name is, but he's so weird, but I think so magnetic um, mm-hmm. in this way where... Basically, this my is played read. by Corey Allen is his name. Okay, the great Corey Allen gives us a great performance as Buzz in a way where I would say my read on this whole sort of relationship is like this magnetic attraction. Like, I mean, yeah, I think you could read a homoerotic attraction into it if you mm-hmm. want. Again, this is where that that would be more like digging into the subtext. I think there's an argument for it there, but I think you can also just read it as like a friend attraction, but in this sort of frame of antagonistic, tough masculinity, where the only way they can express that is by fighting. And when they've agreed to do this suicidally dangerous chicky run, they're going looking over the edge, and Buzz is like, you know something, I like you. And Jim says, I think, uh, so why do we do this? Buzz kind of shrugs and says, you got to do something, right? It's such a good exchange. I love, love that scene 
because, you know, as I say, you get this feeling of these kids who feel so uh, helpless in the world that they put themselves in this insane, perilous situation. And also because I think you get this this feeling of like, oh, these guys should be friends or want mm-hmm. to be friends, but instead they have to sort of walk this path and it ends up, you know, killing one of them. But I find their whole, all of their banter all the way through, you know, he's like, yeah, you're cute. Yeah, I'm cute too. You know, like, uh, uh, it's examination time, man. It's a crazy game. Um, all of their little banter and even through the knife fight, it feels mm-hmm. to me very, I don't know, intimate and charged. And I find that whole dynamic so compelling. I, I love this chapter of the movie. There is, I think a lot of this movie is about masculinity mm-hmm. and like masculine relationships. And that is certainly getting at something fascinating that I guess Jim is sort of a chameleon, maybe in the way that James Dean is. Like when he, in the way that James Dean is a chameleon as an actor, like Jim is sort of a chameleon as a as a high school student because mm-hmm. when he's with Plato, he's happy to be like, hey, we're just sweet, nice friends. Like, there's no rivalry or challenge between us. Like, I feel like you're my little kid brother. Mm-hmm. But then when he's meeting up with Buzz and the the kids, there is this like, okay, the only way we can be friends is through violent confrontation. Yeah. And you sort of, you feel like Jim doesn't quite want that. Like, he really resists joining in the knife fight. I think, again, this is the sort of thing, if you're coming into this movie like, ooh, James Dean is playing a rebel, it's like, oh, yeah, here he's going to immediately jump into a knife fight. But he really, like, holds off joining that knife fight for as long as he can. Yeah. And sort of the same thing with the the car race. I think you're right. Like, even when they, I mean, the car race is so, that shot of Natalie Wood standing there between the two cars, and she, like, raises her hand and throws it down to start the race, and then the cars drive by and she turns and runs and her dress like kind of billows up. Like mm-hmm. this is that like cinemascope 1950s, like hyper saturated oh, filmmaking yes. that is like just freaking gorgeous Vivid. to watch. But yeah, I think you're right that once. So like Jim has jumped out of the car, doesn't realize that Buzz has gone off the cliff and his immediate instinct is to kind of laugh. And he's like, oh, where's Buzz? Like what a fun, crazy thing we did. Now yeah. we can. I think you're right that his instinct is like, oh, now we can be bonded over. Yes having done this together and instead it's the you know this tragedy that kind of triggers the events of the rest of the of yeah the, the car race comes about halfway through the movie like an hour into this roughly two hour movie and i would say the second half is basically the entire cast responding to trauma but without sort of realizing that's what they're mm-hmm. doing yeah like i think everyone starts behaving in very bizarre ways that are only explained by the fact that they just witnessed this horrific accident that they immediately then decide sort of, I know you did last summer style to just be like, that didn't happen. Yeah. Like we're all going back to our life. We're not going to report this. Yeah. Here's the scene that I love in this section is, mm-hmm. is pretty much everyone scatters immediately. They feel like the cops are coming. Like we have to get away. And Judy's standing over the bluff looking down oh, and I don't even yeah. read it necessarily. I did not read it as like, Oh, she wanted to jump. But they have Jim do this thing where he, like, reaches out his hand to her very, like, gently. And then she takes his hand and he just, like, gently shakes his head no. And then, like, pulls her towards her. That's the kind of James Dean acting that I'm like, oh, this is so freaking good. Like, little behavioral, quiet behavioral things, Mm -hmm. I think, are where he really excels versus loud monologues, which I think is maybe where he thinks he excels or where he is most best remembered as yeah but it's the little moments where i'm like oh that's so good yeah i think you're right that that's those are extremely charged i think the thing about the loud monologue parts Mm -hmm. is that 
I think he does some really cool line deliveries. You know, I think a lot about you get a line of dialogue on the page. And I think sometimes we don't think about how hard it is to just figure out how am I going to just yeah at what pace with what little pauses and breaks, what goes up, what goes down, just the act of taking words which are on a page with no intonation at all and figuring out how to, you know, I sometimes use the phrase to break it up or to scan it, but basically how to deliver a line. And I think you can sense you can sense how hard it is when you hear bad line deliveries. And it's yeah. different from bad writing. You know, bad writing is very hard to salvage. But you'll hear these deliveries and you're like, that just doesn't sound like a human. And separately from realism, it's like, that just doesn't sound good. That just didn't like, that just didn't land. That just didn't work. Because realism and sort of interesting dynamism to a delivery are not always the same thing. But I think the task of just figuring out how to deliver a line is one of the coolest weirdest hardest most kind of like alchemical and intuitive things that actors do i mean that's like the mm-hmm. basic of it well, well you know of course also acting is reacting and there's all these things you do when without speaking but breaking up a line is hard and the people who are great at it are so electric to watch and so i do think that when he has his big explosive things you get some really cool breaking up of the line so I do think those moments are are cool. But I do also agree, probably the things that most sell this character for me are quiet line deliveries and just little spaces between line deliveries. Not to mention a totally separate thing, which is physicality, which is also yeah, so interesting and weird. so good. There's a moment, I forget, so they go home... Or they don't go home. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, now I'm jumping. They kind of have a break where they all go. They briefly separate after the Buzz's death to sort of try to sort it out themselves, and then ultimately the trio ends up coming back together because they're like, "No one is helping us. We just Mm -hmm. have to, yeah, try to escape this on our own." And we can talk about some of those scenes where they where they go back to their houses, most notably his. But when they do come back together, the first thing is he and Judy meet in the alleyway in a scene Mm -hmm. that is just. I really hope you're going to say the moment that I. love uh i mean i i i love so many little moments in that i was just going to talk about the strange physical choice of his to like lean over the hood of the car kind ned of that is exactly what i was going yeah, to really? say oh yeah yes uh, i rewatched it i will not like probably 10 times i could not get over this choice there the camera is at is facing the back of the car so judy and and Jim are both leaning on it. And I think traditionally the blocking would be that they're both just there having a conversation with their faces facing the camera. Mm-hmm. But James Dean does this thing. He's trying to say like, hey, do you want to like go hang out at this deserted mansion with me? But he's trying to be like cool, like casual about it. And he's sort of like, he turns around like he's saying, so we're, we don't even see his face at all. We're just seeing the back of him and he's leaning over the the car. And he's he's like, yeah. Plato told me about this mansion. Like, mm, you want to go up there? <laughs> like, he just tosses it off, like you're saying. Great line delivery. But also the physicality that's like, it's equal parts casual and awkward in a way that is so believably a teenager. Mm-hmm. I freaking loved that moment so much. And it was actually reminding me of a lot about what I love about Christian Bale's performance in Little Women mm. that I think is similarly physical and casual in a way that really informs this young person and how they carry themselves in the world Mm -hmm. it's totally evocative of that energy of that scene and also i think just particularly at an era where acting had a tradition of being more stagey more presentational Mm -hmm. there is a thing 
And it's funny, you know what those moments where you watch a movie and you see a non-actor in a movie and you're like, damn, we really are so bad at passing as human beings. Because the second you <laughs> see a real human being, you're like, well, that's not an actor. That's just a real person. So, yeah. wow, maybe acting is... Acting just has all these things that are hard to get around. Like, as you say, like, totally the way you would expect anyone to stage that scene would be to cheat towards the camera mm-hmm. and lean on the car and kind of strike a cool pose. And But life is full of these things where, like, you just get a, you know, you'll get a weird impulse to kind of, like, lean your tummy on the counter or something. Mm-hmm. Or, like, I just want to, like, put my hands over my head and, like, like, put my elbows up on the wall. Just, like, weird little, just, like, random human shit impulses that I honestly think are kind of, like, trained out of actors because they're not, like, cinematic or theatrical. And I think that also totally is just like, oh, it's just like people doing shit with their body responding, yeah. just kind of being totally at ease. Well, as you say, the character is not at ease, but the actor just being like at ease inhabiting that character. Mm-hmm. In that moment. And I do think that the sort of switch into this method acting mode in the 1950s, which sometimes I feel like does get a little talked up. Mm hmm. In terms of how revolutionary it was, because it's not as if it's not as if there was no truth in acting up right, to nineteen fifty. Right, exactly. And I even it. think about something like like Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life is mm-hmm. doing so much behavioral shit and interesting prop work and weird line deliveries and this like very like natural like I think that's a performance that feels as much as alive as you know these you know method acting. What do you know the amount of times I said method acty on this podcast? Somehow that's Lots. my yeah. Somehow this is a phrase I've used. My, the method acty we know what you mean moments. Um, but I do think at their best there is something that is very alive in these James Dean, Marlon Brando, Montgomery Clift performances, behaviorally or like you're saying with line delivery. I always think of this moment in On the Waterfront where it's it's. Marlon Brando and the girl he's like flirting with they're walking by this these swings and she like drops her glove and then he picks up the glove and is like playing with it mm-hmm. which I think maybe was not staged like she actually just dropped the glove and it's such a human thing to just pick something up and start playing with it mm-hmm. but I do think those are the little gestures that maybe you know would be less common in movies before this yeah and that I think are key as small as they are are very key to the success of these method actor performances yeah they're both so relaxed in that scene it's truly it's it's a scene that i think you could totally just pull out an excerpt to be like look at the cool chemistry and good acting that was going on in, in this movie with these rebel two without teams. a cause scene oh sorry yes yes the yeah. rebel without a cause scene where they are it's so good he also does this thing where he like kisses hood. her on the forehead kind mm-hmm. of out of nowhere it mu- it feels unscripted, but it must be because the way she responds seems like it's lying. She's you know she's like, why did you do that? And he's like, because I wanted to. Or they were improvising through. I don't know how much of yeah, this maybe. movie was improvised. The, the, the weirdness seem- of the lines feel like maybe a decent chunk of it was. It does seem like from what I've read, James Dean was given a lot of creative freedom in terms of mm-hmm. improvising things himself or just deciding the pace of various scenes or the tones of various scenes. There was some story where they were like, I think he and Nicholas Ray spent a lot of time like working on this character. Also, side note that I just feel like I have to acknowledge, Nicholas Ray, man in his 40s, did end up like, quote unquote, dating Natalie Wood, who was literally 16 during the making of this film, a.k.a. You know, statutory rape. So Not so cool. Don't I don't want to overpraise Nicholas Ray um, in this conversation, or at least I want to acknowledge this very this is a component bad of aspect of it. But yeah. it does sound like Nicholas Ray and James Dean 
spent a lot of time just like working together and sort of playing around with with various things. And one of the actors described that there was some scene where they like started rolling the camera and James Dean just like laid on the floor in the fetal position for like a minute or two. And then Nicholas Sawyer was like, action. And then James Dean stood up and like did the scene amazingly. And the lady was like, that was weird as hell, but okay. I guess that's their process. Man. Yeah, they were figuring stuff out. I mean, I think that the way we talk about this behavior has got to be different at a time when it was a little bit more experimental in the true Mm -hmm. sense of they were trying something out to see how it worked and got some very cool results. I'm not talking Mm -hmm. about dating your 16-year-old actor. I'm talking about, you know. in the fetal position. Yeah, or like doing weird improv or just, yeah, it's different. You know, we talked a lot, particularly in the Bale series, I think, Mm -hmm. especially in our fighter episode, about this whole question of method acting. And for starters, it's a very different thing when a 23-year-old does it than when someone who's been in the industry for a decade or two. Yeah, I do agree. Uh, does it. And also, it's a different thing when somebody does it in the 50s at the dawn of film method acting, where, again, you know, not to, not to say they weren't accountable for their behavior, but but they were... They were doing something new. They were trying to change the game. And so I think I give a little bit more of a permissive attitude towards mm-hmm. towards shit where it's like, you what? You just laid on the floor in a ball? <laughs> I'm like, okay, you know, try it out. Whereas, you know, if like, you know, if Leo DiCaprio was like, stop, I need to lie on the floor in a ball, <laughs> yeah. it'd be like, okay, eye roll. You know? um, and I will say as much as James Dean is the one that's singled out, for this method acting and for this movie, like Natalie Wood and Salminio are matching him every moment. Absolutely. They are equally, you know, talented. I feel like there's less of a mythos around them in terms of what their pro- acting process was, but whatever it was, it was giving them equal results because I think they are both like absolutely fantastic in their own versions of these very tortured teens. As roles. teenagers. I mean, as literal, as, as literal teenage yeah, literal actors. Literal 16-year-olds. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, absolutely wild. Before we get to the chunk of the movie that's like my absolute favorite part of it, there is another sort of iconic James Dean scene, which is when Jim comes home after Buzz's death, and he's essentially just tells his parents what happened, and his impulse is like, okay, let's go to the police and just confess all this, and I might get in trouble. You know, these cars were stolen. Obviously, somebody died, but like the honorable thing to do is to just tell them what happened. And fascinatingly, his parents are both like, don't do that, you'll ruin your life, Mm -hmm. which I think this is a very realistic scene. And it is maybe not the morality that you would expect these characters to have. Like there is an impulse to say, oh, the teen would be irresponsible and selfish and the parents would want to encourage them to be, you know, noble and heroic. But actually, in this case, Jim has this impulse to be very honorable and truthful. And it's his parents who are being more selfish, you know, in their impulse. So whether you want to say that's pragmatic or or selfish, Jim is trying to get his dad to to refute the mom and he ends up yelling like stand up for me, which I think is another big famous line from this. But I really I think this is the of the bigger James Dean scenes in this movie, this one is by far my favorite one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do I do think it's another one where you have some of those dramatic, you know, we're we're all involved, you know that that I think of as an explosive line that has cool delivery. It is a it is an interesting scene. I agree. I think we're getting a sense that for me, it's the stuff with just young people that I find more mm. interesting than Jim's scenes with his parents. Partially because, as you said, his particular struggle with his parents is sort of grounded in things that 
I don't find uh, particularly resonant. Although this one, as as you know, as I was sort of alluding, this is probably the scene where you could most clearly say, like, what he wants from his parents is a sense of integrity. Mm-hmm. See, I I love stories about integrity or honor mm-hmm. or trying to be a good person. So this is all like really working for me. This whole conflict of like him. Him being like, Dad, how do I be a good person, but also a quote unquote good man by society standards? And his mm-hmm. dad's like, I don't know. Should we make a pro and con list? And he's <laughs> like, like, fuck you. Like, a piece of paper. <laughs> it's actually very sweet. Like the dad really is trying. Yeah. Kirsten Howell is really, he really is. He keeps calling him Jimbo. He's like, I want to be his friend. Like, I want to help him. Yeah. And Jim's hatred of that is, I, it, you know, the, the part of it that's tied to 1950s gender roles isn't so relatable anymore. But the sort of like hating your parents for trying, but for trying and not the way that you want them to try, I actually do think can be a very relatable impulse yeah. for certain, you know, parent-child dynamics. Yeah. Because it's not like his dad is a bad guy. His dad is just not who he has imagined the perfect version of his dad to be. And Jim can't appreciate what his dad's doing. Yeah. 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 And then it does, uh, you know, it ends sort of like climactically. It drives him to the point of like throwing his dad in the ground and attacking him, mm-hmm. which is... Very intense, but you know, I sort of we get the sense of uh, him bursting at the seams with frustration about how how they aren't there for him. Do you know what else I think is very still relatable about this movie is yeah. is how when you're a teenager, you can be so different around your parents than you are around your peers. Oh yeah, Jim is so immature around his parents, and then so supremely mature around his friends, mm-hmm. and to the point where you're. You know, part of me was like, this doesn't make any sense. And then part of me was like, oh, I think I was probably exactly the same way. Like, I probably yeah. was a little brat to my parents. And then around my friends, it's like, oh, I'm the mature, responsible yeah, one. Yeah, there's there's elements of code switching, but also there's elements in which your family just like brings out energies in you. You just react mm-hmm. very differently mm-hmm. in an organic way uh, than you would around period. I, I, I remember it was a teenager that I first started to sort of notice this about myself and I didn't really have, uh, I didn't have the same uh, reference lens that I do now for the concept of performative identity. And I was like, am I fake? Is there a real me? You know, I really went through this yeah. thing. Although now I'm just psychoanalyzing my high school self and this is not really relevant to the... <laughs> or is it entirely relevant? Maybe. In the in the 1957 Altman movie, they have a whole extended sequence that's like, they have a voiceover and they're like literally showing like a an artist drawing, like a recreation. And it's like most people, they draw a circle and they're like, they had their secret selves and they surrounded with a wall of mirrors that protects it. But James Dean, and they're drawing all these scraggly lines around, you know, the two circles they have. And it's like, he built a wall of shocks and thorns and seductions to keep it that he couldn't even let people see the mirror that was hiding his true self and i said to him what are you afraid of jimmy why won't you let anyone see you wow so these themes are <laughs> relevant to this movie and potentially to james dean's yeah. entire life wow so this do- this sounds like this doc was really going for a very dramatic energy itself there is also an extended metaphor about a dead seagull that then at the end when they get to the actual car crash, they cut back to the dead seagull. Oh, God. The symbolism is not subtextual mm-hmm. <laughs> in that documentary. No. Um, but in this movie, so briefly, Jim does actually try to go to the police and confess. And another sign of like adults don't care about kids. They basically are just like, eh, go away, come back get later. Out of here, yeah. Even though he, they have been dragging kids in to try to figure out what happened with this accident. Mm-hmm. When a kid actually comes in to try to confess, they just blow him off. And so that leads basically to Jim and Judy sort of hook up in their response to this trauma. Judy at one point says, I'm numb. Mm. And then they both decide like, okay, we're madly in love with each other and that will solve all of our problems. Yeah. 
Um, and then you have the the bad kids, Buzz's friends, are sort of on the hunt uh, and court, sort of go harassing Plato. But it ends up that you have Jim, Judy, and Plato are all wind up at this empty mansion that Plato yeah. has pointed out earlier in the movie near the planetarium. And they have what I think is one of the two best scenes in this movie where they are sort of playing house I love in this mansion. so much. It's so good. And so Plato sort of pretends like he's the real estate agent showing them around. And then Jim and Judy strike up this attitude like, you know, they're wealthy newlyweds. And like, oh, wow. where, you know, where should we put the mm. kitchen? And and where would the nursery go? And this like, they're sort of like, again, processing their trauma by like making fun of how vapid they think adults are. Yeah. And it's so good. Yeah. I mean, it's a really awesome thing. Uh, particularly, I love the angle of it when they are, when they get out to the pool, ooh, sunken nursery, and are talking about how annoying kids are, that mm-hmm. it's this, another way that this reminds me of West Side Story, particularly one viewing of West Side Story that I did back in college when I like I got high and watched it and I had all these like OMG moments of like... Of like, oh my god, it's just pretend play. That's the play. most Ned story that I've ever heard. <laughs> it's a very before. Ned story. I got high and had a revelation about. I was West just Side like, story. Officer Krupke is just the children engaging in pretend play because mm. they've had to mature in their hardened world so fast that they have no outlet for their creative play energy. I was also taking creative drama with Reeves Collins at Northwestern at the time. <laughs> I was obsessed with this idea of pretend play, and I think I like. I like putting it in my movies, too, when I work. I'm interested in the idea of characters, getting to see characters play and, like, do impressions. It also, what what episode of our podcast was I talking about my love of movies where characters do funny voices? I don't know. I don't know either, but I do remember you saying that. It might have been David Copperfield. It might have been Agnes Wickfield saying, help, help, Agnes is chasing me. Um, This does have some of the energy, the little David Copperfield energy. Oh, absolutely. All them, all them, when they're walking around and, uh, oh, well, then they're now. uh, It's also like that scene, do you remember that scene in um, 500 Days of Summer where they go to Ikea and pretend very similarly, Mm. they pretend to be like a married couple that they're in their house. And I feel like that scene was so charming. Yeah. Like that was the standout scene in that movie. And I'm like, oh, that was... Yeah. Did it in Rebel Without a Cause, you know, yeah. decades earlier. Quick, fill the pool. I love that. They're, all their playfulness. And again, this is, I think, when you're starting to get the much more reined in James Dean, mm-hmm. which I find so much more compelling. The behavioral and the, like, de-escalated versions of him, mm-hmm. I find to be just, like, so much more real- realistic and compelling and sweet. Like, they lock into this... They they again they phrase it as the di- the dynamic that Judy and Jim are the parents and Plato is their son, mm-hmm. but there is one shot in this movie that similarly to the leaning scene we talked about earlier I rewound so many times where they're hanging out by the pool Judy's sitting down on like a bench Jim lays down and put his puts his head in her lap great flirty like very relatable mm-hmm. thing to do. Then Plato puts his head in the crook of Jim's arm that's on the bench, almost in the exact same pose that Jim has it in Judy's lap. Mm-hmm. So it's like this layer of like people very flirtatiously putting their heads on other people that is like, oh, like that. If I had to have one image that summed up this movie, it would be the three of them in that poses. Yeah. Because you just totally get like this is the flirtatious energy that's like motivating all of them. And they probably can't even articulating articulate what's happening and this is a situation where jim and judy are like we're madly in love everything's fine meanwhile literally her boyfriend has died like two hours before like none of this is 
is is logical, yeah. but it's all so believable. That I have a reference for, even in my very square theater nerd high school upbringing. Particularly going to this theater camp where I had it had all the oh my god electric hormonal energy of going <laughs> to sleep away camp, and it was a theater acting camp, and I just have this memory of like being on a break with like you know probably like five or six of us kind of like lying in a puddle on the floor just like Mm -hmm. bodies touching bodies and this like this energy of physical touch and connection in a way that you're like not really familiar with from your peers and like this kind of and you're in a space that's so removed from like adult eyes yes yes that my summer camp does have in common with this (laughs) uh, rebel without a cause scene that it was this sense of like us having created our own secret little hideaway Mm -hmm. and like there's just these like beams of energy shooting back and forth between everyone so yeah that does give me a sense memory and in the movie i think it's interesting because you know i i I think we keep talking about like is it a family thing is it a sexual thing and i think like yes it is intentionally all of the above there is yes there's definitely have you ever been a theater kid like (laughs) (laughs) yeah these things intersect yeah so you definitely have this I don't know, kind of like beautiful, tender threesome between them. But Mm -hmm. it also really fully functions on the level of, and this is the more textual level of them becoming parents to Plato, who of the three of them most most specifically feels abandoned by his parents. Mm -hmm. Like you never see his parents. He's totally out alone. And tied up in the flirty sexual energy is also him just making a mom and dad out of Jim and Judy. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's really beautiful. And, and, you know, the sort of like violation of that trust is what sets in motion the climax of the film. I was about to say, talk about relatable high school moments. Like three people are hanging out and then two of them are like, well, we want to go hook up. So we'll just leave you alone. (laughs) Which to be fair, Jim and Judy do very sweetly. Like Plato falls asleep. They kind of cover him up with a little coat and they're basically like, okay, we want to go make out somewhere. They're really not, they're genuinely not trying to abandon him. No. And they have this very sweet moment where they take off his shoes and he's wearing different socks. Mm. And first they laugh at it like sweetly. And then Jim is like, yeah, but haven't you done that before too? Yeah. And it's not even a moment where he's saying that like Plato's asleep. So he's not saying it to like help Plato save face. He's just saying it as like, even in this so moment of, of making fun of our friend, like, let's remember to be empathetic towards him as well. Yeah. It's so freaking sweet. And then Jim and Judy go off and they have their kiss and they're like, we're in love. Everything's perfect. Yeah. And, and again, I think if he, I think. That also happened at summer camp. <laughs> oh, sure. Same theater camp. Sure. Wow, man. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think that if you are maybe watching this uncritically or you're sort of i think somebody could go into this movie thinking it's a dumb melodrama and think it's bad writing that jim and judy fall in love so quickly after her boyfriend has died but i actually think the swiftness of that is an intentional like trauma response to what they've gone through and is not necessarily just meant to be like oh a, a classic wholesome teen romance yeah yeah. Although that is how they play it, because that's from their point of view, that's kind of how they're feeling it. Yeah, but I think absolutely, like, yeah, the zero to sixtiness of it is completely, genuinely emotionally resonant with being, I mean, with being a teenager, and also as you say, like, going through a trauma together, mm-hmm. you know, feeling like they survived something together. There's this immediate like zwoop together of them mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah. I think. And I mean, we have not really said this, but like James Dean's very cute. <laughs> oh yeah, <They're, laughs> if you were in yeah. a room with James Dean, you would fall in love with him. 100%. I mean, anyone would fall in love with him. Yeah, they're all they're all so hot. Yeah, he's. I mean, he 
he hasn't yet taken off his jacket. I mean, when he's in just the t-shirt and the planetarium at the end, like, Incredible. holy God. I mean, basically, James Dean invented t-shirts. Like, I think I read yeah. something that, like, t-shirt sales, I guess, in Marlon Brando. But, like, this was the period where everyone was like, we all need t-shirts. They look incredible. Because it was basically, <laughs> look at like, our hottest actors. it was a type of underwear, right? It was, like, an undershirt, basically. Right, like, he and um, Jim and Plato were suits to school. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, wild to think about. Yeah. Um, but you're right, the Jim and Judy sneaking away is sort of like the unintentional tragedy because the the gangsters end up coming in and Plato is alone and rightly panicking because a bunch of violent thugs are trying to jump him. But he, you know, again, they've set this up at the beginning that he had killed those puppies. And this is when that starts to come into play because he has taken his mom's gun with him, mm-hmm. shoots at some of the, the like, teens. Shoots the, Crunch. The gang of teens, yeah. yeah. And then almost like shoots Jim, like he's just in a full panic state Mm -hmm. and then ends up running out of the mansion. The cops are sort of showing up at this point. And the the last, I mean, this is kind of another shift for this movie. The last like 15 minutes are just like a manhunt crime drama Mm -hmm. where you have Plato is on the run and ends up running back into the planetarium that we saw at the beginning of the movie. And the police are after him and... Jim and Judy are like, okay, it's our responsibility to go help him and make sure, you know, he can be taken in safely. Yeah. Also, Jim's parents are around and sort of like trying to track him down. It's sort of like this massive climax where everyone is converging on this um, observatory. I kind of expected Jim to somehow, when I first watched it, I kind of expected him to somehow end up in a shootout with the cops himself. I mean, I mentioned Mm -hmm. in The Outsiders, there is kind of like a tragic a tragic shootout with one of those characters. I kind of thought that was going to be him. It is interesting that, you know, I think something sort of true to life is, you know, a sort of a folksy wisdom thing that I remember from a history teacher of mine saying is like the most dangerous person is someone who's really scared. Yeah. Don't be afraid of someone who like boasts and talks a big game the same way you should be afraid of someone who is desperate and cornered. And so they set that dynamic up with Plato, who's kind of like the most scared and vulnerable character in the movie mm-hmm. someone who's like basically said i've been alone my whole life and feels you know clearly victimized and you know if you want to read in it's it's not explicitly how the scene plays out with the the gang targeting him it seems like they're basically like bullying him because they want to get to jim but it does have like you know gay bashing tones to it mm-hmm. so it sets him up as this sort of trapped scared figure and it puts jim in essentially the position of like the negotiator trying to sort of Mm -hmm. talk him down and again it's a really it's a great mode for james dean to inhabit oh my god this scene so it ends up being the climax of this movie is really just um jim and plato in the big uh empty planetarium and and jim sort of put on the star show you know that they play so that's Mm -hmm. serving as their lighting this scene, like, I could watch this scene for 24 hours. I think this is, like, <laughs> just one of the best scenes in cinema. It's, like, you have you have Salmonio doing this beautiful internal panic. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not playing an outward frenetic. Like, he is this quiet, like, what have I done? Kind of really just out of it more than anything else. And Jim's, like, skill at de-escalating the situation. Again, I keep going back to like when James Dean de-escalates, that's when I find him most compelling. Mm-hmm. And this is a scene where both he is de-escalating his performance, but the character is actively trying to de-escalate the situation. Yeah. And it's beautifully written and it's beautifully played. Like he's so calm. He's like, Plato, like all these guys are out there. They're um, our friends and they just want to talk to you. Like, do you want to go out with me? Judy's here. And they have like Jim's, the way they write Jim in the scene and his instincts 
he kind of like tries to get the gun from Plato and then realizes, you know, that's not really going to work. So he's like, could I just hold it for a minute? And then he's like, here, I'll give you my jacket. And like, you can let me see the see the gun. And he does this amazing thing where Plato hands him the gun and he like pretends like it's really heavy. And he's like, man, I can't believe you've been carrying around this heavy thing all day. Like, I must have been so hard for you. It's so gentle. And then he secretly takes the bullets out of it. And then he's trying to get Plato to walk out of the room. And Plato's like, are you going to give me my gun back? He's like, of course I will. And he goes to hand it back to him. And then he very casually like starts walking away as a way to get Plato to start exiting the room. And he does end up handing the gun back to him. But it's very much like, okay, I need to get this kid to like do these certain steps without yeah. him knowing that that's what I'm doing. And again, it's an, it's another example of that sort of chameleonic aspect of the character you mentioned. He kind of slides mm-hmm. into the mode that he needs to be in to... Which is almost like talking to a child because you've got this kind yeah. of like regressed inside himself, like almost like shattered version of Plato. Yes. That he needs to sort of like just put on the right mode that will help get him out safely. And he does so beautifully. And then the tragedy of this movie is that even though Jim has fully been able to to relate to Plato and de-escalate the situation, what you have is... You know, whether you want to frame it as adults in general or the police in particular are the ones that completely escalate this situation. And and they end up like sort of making Plato panic again because they're not quite following the instructions Mm -hmm. or trusting that Jim has it under control. And they end up the end of this is that they shoot Plato. Yeah. Or if you want to look at it very broadly, it's just again, like the world hasn't made the space for them and it doesn't work with what they need. Can't give them what they need. And it's very, I mean, it's like heartbreaking. And there's another great, probably my favorite, like Dean, like exclamation moment is he's like i have the bullet plato has already like he's been shot he's like dead and he's like but i have the bullets like i have the bullets right here almost like he's like okay can you unshoot him like he didn't have bullets in his gun it's such a childlike impulse yeah oh that's the scene that they say in la la land (laughs) so you know there's ryan gosling just goes like i have the bullets okay yeah (laughs) oh it's so sad and also can i say a subtextual thing that i had never thought about i have no idea if i never thought about before this viewing Please. i have no idea if it was intentional or not but the setup where you have all the cops outside and you have the kids inside and most of the cops don't quite know what's going on they just know like some kid had a gun mm-hmm. the way they set it up is that it's plato's housekeeper who's black she comes up and she says like my boy ran off this night and i wonder if there was some intentionality to this idea that oh. Some of the cops thought maybe the kid inside that had a gun was black, and that made them more inclined to shoot. Oh, that's very interesting. I just thought it was so purposeful the way the housekeeper, she just said, my boy, which on the one hand is an incredibly sweet like tribute to the relationship that they have, mm-hmm. and it's working on that level as well. But it also is this like, the cop would just take that to me, you know, my biological son. I don't know. I don't know if it's there intentionally or not. It felt very resonant to me on this viewing, at least. That is very interesting and then that's basically the end of the movie we get i don't always quite know how i feel about I, everything about you know they end up like putting the jacket on plato after he says a very my girl <laughs> situation like he needs she, he needs the glasses he can't see without his glasses but they they put the jacket on plato and like oh he's always cold and, and taking the body away and then uh, we get what i always feel like is a slightly strange ending when he like introduces judy yeah. to his parents and the parents kind of give each other this like look of like yes oh, we that understand. look in particular that's the weirdest is, part it feels like sitcom-y yes very sitcom-y which i don't know maybe that's the impulse of like oh, yeah, it's you. hollywood in the 50s we have to make sure everyone's like 
everything's fine. I would like, believe that, you know, that it was like, we can't just end. I I don't know. It, it, it is a, a slightly weird note. I do slightly like check out for the very last like two minutes. Yeah. It, just and it really like, is very short. And mm-hmm. the idea of the dad sort he's like, okay, Jim, like I can't just stand up on my own, but like you and I can stand up together. Like we'll do this together. I think that's actually a nice note to end that storyline on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other than that one little look. Yeah. But yeah, it's devastating. It's a devastating movie. Yeah. Yeah, his, I mean, uh, also just like uh, all around the I have the bullets moment, just like James Dean's acting of like powerful, explosive, like sobbing heartbreak at witnessing this thing. It's like- And you just know that he's going to be haunted for the rest of his life. Like if he hadn't given, like he knew the gun had no bullets, but Mm -hmm. clearly in retrospect, he'll be like, I just shouldn't have given him the gun at all because the cops wouldn't know that. Yeah, and it does feel like you don't get, you don't get that outpouring when- Buzz dies. I mean, Buzz is, you know, sort of much more a, a victim of his own choices. Oh well, mm. I don't actually that his phrase own jacket is, that, choices. his own jacket choices. That that phrase actually that, that phrase now that I use it is like. But basically, the vibe around Buzz is different. But I think it mostly has to do with the relationships between all the people who witnesses mm-hmm. Buzz's death. That there's no catharsis there. And then with Plato's death, which I guess you could argue like both deaths are essentially like tragic misunderstandings, tragic accidents, like. Yeah. Then you get this like deep outpouring and you get a very tremendously sad James Dean and Natalie Wood and they're both Ugh. really heartbreaking to watch in that moment. They're so good. Natalie Wood. So Natalie Wood, Sal Minio, and actually Nicholas Ray were all nominated for Oscars. Mm. Nicholas Ray was nominated for We Don't Have This Anymore. It's a story. Like you know how movies oh. will have like story by credit and then like screenplay by? Mm. They used to give Oscars out like for the story credit. Wow. So that was what his nomination was for. Huh. Interestingly, this is of the three movies, James Dean got nominations for the other two, not for this one. Oh, um, go figure. Yeah, go figure. I think it was actually sort of like a, a little bit of a mixed reaction to this movie when it came out at the time, although these days it is definitely hailed as a totally classic of this era and like a really defining, you know, like the 1950s was the first time that like we conceptualized teenagers as their own group of people oh, in our society. Huh. It was sort of like a post-World War II idea basically that this was like a their own social group and their own group with like economic power and we should build a culture around them mm. as opposed to like oh this is a transitional stage of life that where you go from childhood to adulthood and you're sort of rushing past that to go like enter the workforce yeah. this was like hey kids have money to burn and like their own emotions and we should in some way <laughs> build a lot of our society around that and i think rebel without a cause is like very much at the heart of forming the idea of teen culture that frankly exists to this day like i think every teen show now has a james dean type right like this is just mariano on gilmore girls and whatever a little bughead on on riverdale like every show has a james dean or um luke perry in in beverly hills 90210 like this is such an archetype of teen movies now and this was the formation of it yeah that's wild to learn about teenagers just popping in because that's what this movie is about you know it's not about rebellion it's about Teenager, teenager teenage wasteland yeah. that would be my title for this yeah yeah that would probably be a better no, one i don't know so yeah that's rebel without a cause man one of my favorites it's great it's a great film yeah it's funny that um i should mention this is one that for years you learned maybe six or seven years ago that i hadn't seen this you were like oh my god it's so good come over and watch it anytime and we always kind of talked <laughs> about doing it but yeah. then we never got around to doing it so so I'm. So really... what you're saying is it will take another six years before we watch La La Land together. Uh, potentially. I'm. I'm certainly not going to be uh, pushing 
incredibly hard to make that happen but uh well, well i'm so glad that you could experience this movie Absolutely. and we can chat about it like i just think again there's so much to unpack i'm really excited to do the next two deans which i'm i'm less familiar than with this one so we are going to do east of eden next which again is the first movie he filmed first movie that was out in this 1955 year that he had and the only movie that was released in his lifetime and we'll be back for that next week Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Caroline Sita, and Ned Baker. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wonserski. You can follow us on Twitter at Roll Calling, or you can email us. Let us know your thoughts on Rebel Without a Cause, rollcalling at gmail.com. That's Roll, R-O-L-E. Next week, we'll be back to look at James Dean's big screen debut in East of Eden. Until then. Me too. Uh, may I have some dirt? Please.